take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Friday, I had the opportunity of going down to Indianapolis and visiting my folks. And I discovered that my folks go to the website weekly and enjoy our worship center. So hi, Mom and Dad. Love you. Told them I was going to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to share together this morning. To praise the name of the invisible, immortal, eternal one. Who is indeed our God. Father, not only is the declaration that you are our God true, but it's also true that we are your people. And we corporately are the household of God, the assembled ones of the living God to live out the truth from our lives. We love you. We pray that you would just work in our hearts this day. Father, that you would receive glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is this thing we call the church? The word ecclesia occurs some 115 times in the New Testament. On two occasions, it's, it identifies a group of non-believers that are assembled together. On two other occasions, it identifies Israel, through whom God worked as his chosen people. Twenty-five times, it identifies the church universal, all believers. But 90 times in the New Testament, as you read the word church, it identifies a local assembly that are meeting together to carry out the work that God has called them to. Last week we looked into 1 Timothy chapter 3. And there we discovered the wonder of the church. The church is indeed the household of God. It is the assembled ones of the living God. Designed to be the pillar and buttress of truth. And as Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor, he tells them that that is to regulate your behavior. That is how you are to live as the household of God, the assembled ones of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. This is what is to be seen in your life. But that drives us to another question. And that question is this. How do we know when this assembly of believers that we call the church is all that God wants it to be? In other words, how are we to measure the church? How are we to understand what God wants it to be? Now, there are a lot of different measures that you can use for the church. You can use the measure of growth, numbers. Are more people meeting this Sunday than last Sunday? Are more people meeting this year than last year? Is there growth in the church? You can measure it 
by giving. What are the financials say? How are people responding in stewardship, not only with their dollars, but also with their lives and with their testimonies, with their gifts? You can measure it by going. Missions. And missions is more than all the world because it is also locally, not only globally. And a lot of times we talk about missions and we think about global missions. And it is part of that. Witnesses under the uttermost parts of the earth. But we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea as well. You can measure a church by how greased it is. How, how well does it run? <laughs> Are the deeks deeking? Are the trustees trusting? Are the teachers teaching? Are there gaps? Are there, are there places where others need to be involved? How, how well does the church run? You can measure it by giftedness, the Holy Spirit. Does the congregation get excited about God's work in, in their lives? And by the way, the Holy Spirit has gifted all of us to serve him, and we ought to get excited about opportunities that God gives to us to serve him. Or do you measure the church by how gigantic it is? Large, multifaceted ministries that, that go on. Multi-campuses. Is that the measure of the church? How do you measure a church? The Apostle Paul was involved in writing a number of books in the New Testament. And he wrote to seven different assemblies of believers. He wrote to Rome. To Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, and the churches in Galatia. And he helped them understand what God intended their ministries to be. And so we want to understand what God intends our ministry to be as we look at these epistles, these writings of the Apostle Paul. And I think they will identify qualities that help us recognize how we are to fulfill the mission that God has called us to. Now, you're in Philippians chapter 1, right? Okay. I want you to mark some word, a word. It occurs five times here. In verse 5, the word is gospel. In verse 7, the word is gospel. In verse 12, the word is gospel. In verse 16, the word is gospel. And in verse 27, the word is gospel. Any ministry that takes place must begin with the gospel. You can go out and you can get involved in social works. You can get involved in the community. You can get involved in a lot of stuff. But it must include the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the good news. The good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again according to scriptures. We sang about that this morning. 
And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And so everything that we do must be underlined with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now why is that true? It's true because according to verse 5, we're partners in the gospel. All right, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We are to be partners in the gospel. This isn't the pastor's job only. This isn't the deacon's job only. This isn't the Sunday school teacher's job only. We are partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ because each one of us is salt and light within the body. Amen? And so this partnership that we have. Now, some sow some water, some reap. It's all part of our responsibility. But we're partners in the gospel. But not only partners, there's a confirmation of the gospel. Look with me at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The gospel is confirmed in our lives. Confirmation. We'll talk about defense in just a minute. It's also for the advance of the gospel. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's good to be here this morning and to share together as partakers of the gospel. Having the gospel confirmed in our lives. But it can't stop there. Our responsibility is to advance the gospel. To take it forward. To make a difference in someone else's life. Verse 16 talks about the defense of the gospel. And we live in a culture in which we need to defend the gospel. There are a lot of people today that think the gospel is only about doing more good works than bad works. And someday there's going to be this eternal scale that is going to weigh our works. And that will be, decided, that will be what decides where we spend eternity. The defense of the gospel is it's all about what Christ has done, not what we do. And then over in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come, see you, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's all about walking worthy because of what God has done in our lives. You see, the, the truth is, if the gospel doesn't make a difference, doesn't make a difference in our lives here at CBC, then we are not living out God's standard from our lives. Amen? So I ask you this morning, what difference does the gospel of Jesus Christ make in your life. And ought to be more than just, I'm on my way to heaven.
So let me ask again. How do we measure this thing that we call the church? This morning we are going to identify three keys. Three keys, qualities that will help us understand what it means to be a Christ-like body of believers. And these three keys come in a number of passages of Scripture. As Paul wrote to these churches. So you're going to need your Bibles this morning. And we're going to have to take a little bit of a, a trip. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Will you please? Ephesians chapter 1. Look with me beginning in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now let me identify these three keys for you. Verse 15, faith. Mark that in your Bibles, will you please? Verse 15, love. Mark that in your Bibles. And verse 18, hope. These are the three keys that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. Faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love. Because they are the keys to help us be the Christ-like body that God wants us to be. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1, will you please? Colossians chapter 1. Let me begin with verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Did you see it there again? Faith, love, hope. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Faith, love, steadfastness, hope. These three are identified as we see what God wants us to be. Now, I think it's important that we kind of define these words. Faith. Faith is confidence that a church has in Christ its head. Faith is trusting God to accomplish what he wants us to be. 
as we follow his son, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And we're going to talk about that in, in weeks to come. Hope. Hope is this. Stability, steadfastness in the present as we look toward the future. Stability, steadfastness here and now as we look toward what God wants to accomplish in our lives. And love. Love is Christ-like behavior within and from the body. Christ-like behavior within and from the body. These three, faith, hope, love. Test time. What are the three? Faith, hope, love. Can we do it one more time? Faith, hope, love. All right. These three. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is where we're going to spend a little time this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel. Did you identify it there? What are the three? Faith. Okay, we got them all, right? We may not have all got them in the same order, but we got them. All right? So, so we have faith, love, hope identified for us that we have because of the gospel in our lives. Now, it's important to see how that's worked out. And Paul, as he wrote to these believers in Thessalonica, and Thessalonica was a great place to minister. It was a church that Paul confirmed in the gospel. It was a church that, that Paul almost congratulated because of their work in the gospel. And it was a place that Paul identified as an example of the gospel working out in their lives verse 3 remembering before our God and father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness hope there it is faith love and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For we received the word so much in affliction with the, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Paul identifies work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Now, how is that evidenced? Jump over to verse 9. How you turn to God from idols. Their work of faith was a turning to God from idols. It was the conversion that the gospel had in their life. This is what the gospel does. It helps us turn to God from idols. I think it's important for us to identify what an idol is. Someone has said an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Now that's a good definition as far as it goes. But a lot of times we compartmentalize God, right? God has his place. My kids have their place. My work has its place. My hobby has its place. And so I don't have any idols because nothing takes God's place because he's over here. But yet the scripture tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. How much room does that leave for anything else? You see, the truth is, it's not God or this, and it's not God and this, it's God in this. It's God in my kids. It's God in my hobbies. It's God in my work. And any time that we leave God out, we've just established an idol. And idols will get us in trouble. Remember Solomon? Solomon loved a lot of women. And he built up idols in his life. And he followed those idols. That's why John ends his first epistle, 1 John, by saying, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. Part of our conversion is that work of faith that God does as we turn to him from the idols in our But not only is it a work of faith, it's also a labor of love. Last part of verse 9. To serve the living and true God. You know, service is not an option for believers. The gospel is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace are we saved through faith, not of ourselves, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, which comes after verse 9. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in it. Service is not an option for the child of God. And our work of faith is to serve the living and true God. So we go from conversion to commitment. What's my life all about? But therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. pretty good summary statement, isn't it? 
And my conviction, my commitment is that everything in my life is to bring honor and glory to the God who loved me and gave his son for me. That is my labor of love. And then my steadfastness, my patience of hope is to wait for his son from heaven. That's the confidence that we have. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is coming again? Aren't you thankful that he could come today? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest rain, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Amen? That is our steadfastness, our patience, our endurance of hope. To wait for a son from heaven. You know, that's a tough part. My Connie's been gone for a week now. I haven't seen her since a week ago yesterday. She's coming home sometime this week. I don't like waiting for her to come home. That's the tough part. And yet, when we wait for him to come get us, we understand the reason that he's going to come get us, and it's identified here, to save us from the wrath of did you note that? To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, and delivers us from the wrath to come. Have you thought about what you've been saved from? We don't spend a lot of time talking about hell. But it's a real place. I was at a meeting last week. And the executive director was talking about some good things that were happening in the organization. And he said, he said, we're just doing a heck of a job. And I said to him, now there weren't very many people in this meeting. At this point, there were one, two, three, four of us in this room. So I had some freedom. I said, heck isn't a good place to be. He looked at me. I said, maybe we're doing a heaven of a job. That's better. He says, well, heck's better than the other place. And instead of theologically debating with him, I said, neither one of them's good. But aren't you thankful that we're all saved from the wrath to come? And it's coming. And you and I need to recognize that part of our hope is not only Jesus coming to get us, but Jesus coming to rescue us from everything else that everybody else is going to have to go through. That's a good thing. That which is identified as we understand God's call of grace on our lives 
and discipline our lives to be effective examples for the grace of God. It is that which helps us understand what a healthy and productive church, assembly of believers, God wants us. What does Paul write to the believers in Corinth? You're familiar with it. It's the last verse of the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes this. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. What are the three elements that God is looking for in healthy, productive churches. Faith, hope, love. One more time with me, please. Faith, hope, and love. These three. And the greatest of these is love because by this shall all men know you're my disciples. If you have love one for another. So what do we do with all this? Let me give you some things to think about. Thank you, Lord church of your son aren't you thankful for the assembly of believers isn't it great to run into folks who are children of God and to share isn't it it great that's a wonderful thing thank you Lord for the assembly of your son I thank God for my church because Will you think about that, please? Calvary Baptist Church. I thank you, Lord, for CBC, because. Also, I believe my church would grow and mature more if I would. Hmm? We're part of the body, right? We're the assembled ones. And how would our church Grow and mature if I would. Here's why. And lastly, I'm going to ask God to specifically use me too. I'm going to ask God to specifically use me too. This is his church. This is the household of God, the assembled ones of the living God, pillar and buttress of truth. And if you and I are going to be part of a healthy and productive assembly of believers, then it's going to take all of us to be involved in the work that God has called us.